year is 1789. There is a crisis in France, and Louis XVI is forced to call a meeting of the Estates of the Realm, the Estates General. But what is this Estates General? Who are the Estates of the Realm? This is an episode about the Ancien Regime, the system that existed in France before the Revolution. I'm Philip Pugh, and this is From the Bastille to Berlin. In this episode, I'm going to start giving some of the background to what happened in 1789. To understand what happened in 1789, we have to understand what society looked like before the Revolution. So this is the Ancien Regime, Episode 2. The term Ancien Regime broadly refers to the pre-revolutionary structure of France, but I'm using it here a little more broadly to describe the order that prevailed in most of Western Europe before 1789, an order that originated in the early Middle Ages. We're talking, of course, about the classic threefold division of society, those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. That is, we're talking about clergy, nobility, and commoners. But there, of course, there are complications in this picture. But that's where we're going to start it, and I'll give a broad overview of what those three were in this episode. So let's start with the easy one, the church. The wars of the Reformation had been particularly nasty in France, tearing the country apart through the last half of the 16th century as the Huguenots, or French Protestants, engaged in a series of armed revolts intended to force the government to grant them toleration. Complicating this was the rivalry between the royal house of Valois and the dukes of Guise, who were fanatically Catholic and backed by Spanish gold. The result was that the later Valois monarchs oscillated back and forth between religious persecutions, like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and strategic alliances with Protestant forces. In 1584, however, the issue became more complicated, as Henry III took the throne, but his heir was his cousin and brother-in-law, Henry of Navarre, who was a Huguenot. Well, that's awkward. After having the Duke of Guise, who was also named Henry, assassinated, the two remaining Henrys formed an alliance to restore order. But on the verge of their victory, Henry III was also assassinated, which left Henry IV of Navarre as king. Now at this point you might think that as the last man standing and with an army ready to take Paris, Henry could simply waltz in, claim the throne, make toleration the official policy, and build a successful dynasty. You might very well think that. And you would be wrong. For one thing, waltzing wouldn't be invented for another 200 years. For another, the majority of the French nobility and people were still Catholic, and really didn't like the idea of being ruled by a Protestant. Despite its leader having been murdered, the Catholic League was alive and well, and still brimming with Spanish gold. So, Henry decided to stretch a couple points, he converted to Catholicism, and said, Paris is well worth a mass. It was a sign of things to come. And so, with that out of the way, opposition to his rule basically collapsed. Henry entered Paris, promulgated the Edict of Nantes, which gave the Huguenots freedom to practice their religion as well as continued control of a number of key fortresses just to make sure that this wouldn't happen again. 
And so all was well, and the next century saw France completely united with smooth transitions of power, economic growth, and tea and crumpets. Except this isn't what happened. In 1610, Henry was himself assassinated and left a nine-year-old son, Louis XIII, under a regency led by Marie de Medici. Yes, those Medicis. But when Louis reached majority, he, surprise of surprises, wanted to have some say in the government, so he ousted his mother and went on to rule responsibly and well. Except he needed help. So he made one of the best all-time decisions that a petulant mama's boy who can't make up his mind could ever make. He hired a hyper-competent chancellor. Enter Cardinal Richelieu. Now, we all know about the Cardinal. He's that villain from the Three Musketeers who really wants the number one spot, is obviously evil, and no one can understand why the king ever hired him. Well, because truth is more complicated than fiction. For one thing, even in Dumas's original novel, Cardinal Richelieu isn't really a villain, more of an unscrupulous antagonist who really wants the Musketeers to work for him. And in real life, the Cardinal was very similar. There's no doubt that he was a pragmatic Machiavellian who played long games with the fate of France and Europe. But the thing is, he did it to increase royal power. The trouble was that business with the Huguenots. You see, once good King Henry was out of the picture, the idea of having all of those fortresses out of royal control simply wouldn't do. So Richelieu systematically found ways to weaken the position of the Huguenots until, in 1627, he laid siege to their last and greatest stronghold, La Rochelle, taking it the next year. The settlement that followed was that Protestants would still be tolerated, but wouldn't enjoy their state within a state anymore. Nah, Richelieu wasn't a fan of that. But just to show how broad-minded he was on the religious front, the Cardinal then turned his attention to helping the Protestant side in the ongoing religious war in the Holy Roman Empire. To be honest, I could probably write a whole sidetrack episode just on Richelieu and how he is a sign of things to come, and how he used religion to advance the interests of the state, and maybe I will eventually, but not right now. For today's purposes, I want to talk about how Richelieu and his successor as chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, were latent examples of a dying breed, men who used clerical positions to gain secular power. But in some ways, they themselves ensure their own obsolescence. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to the two reasons why medieval monarchs generally like to get high-ranking clerics into these positions in the first place. First of all, clerics tended to be educated, at least on the upper end of things like bishops and such. But more importantly, Catholic clergy were supposed to be celibate, meaning that if you gave a bishop an office, it would revert to the crown on that person's death. Handing out offices to clergy, particularly in finance and logistics, meant that a monarch could more easily control power over the long term. Of course, this also led to conflicts between church and state, but that particular issue was well sorted by the 17th century. However, one of the things that Richelieu and Mazarin began to do was to professionalize the organs of state and build a bureaucracy. They started simply with their own personal followings, but soon they set up a system that functioned no matter who was in charge. The minister would build a staff and would counsel the monarch and choose his own successor. In the time of Richelieu and Mazarin, policy was dictated by the minister himself. 
But when Louis XIV reached his majority, his own force of personality shone through, and his choice of minister was Stephen Colbert. Wait, sorry. I mean, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, a commoner who had been recommended to the king by Cardinal Mazarin. We'll talk about Colbert in a bit, but the point here is that after Mazarin, the monarchy wouldn't rely as heavily on clerics. But this doesn't mean that religion wouldn't be a force in politics. In fact, King Louis would take on the project of a general religious cleanup during his long reign. Abroad, that meant curbing the power of the Protestant Dutch, and after 1688, the English. But at home, its most obvious consequence was a complete reversal of his grandfather's policy of religious toleration for Protestants. In 1685, the king promulgated the Edict of Fontainebleau, which officially revoked the Edict of Nantes, making Protestantism illegal in France. What happened was that hundreds of thousands of Huguenots fled France rather than give up their religion, most of them ending up either in Prussia or the English colonies. Podcast footnote. For any of my listeners on the eastern seaboard of the United States, think back on the places you grew up. Are there any French place names? Guess what? Those are probably areas settled by the Huguenots. Places like New Rochelle, New York, were havens for Protestants fleeing the persecutions of Louis. This legacy is a bit obscured by the fact that most of these communities quickly learned English and adopted the local customs, eventually even merging their churches with the local Presbyterians, Episcopalians, or Dutch Reformed churches. End podcast footnote. So where was I? Right. Louis XIV and religious policy. The other thing about this, though, was that Louis was in the business of ruthlessly pushing religious conformity as a national policy. He wasn't letting Catholic clergy off the hook, either. Idiosyncratic Catholic movements like the Jansenists were to be suppressed, but so were people who were too cozy with the Pope. In 1682, two years before the Edict of Fontainebleau, the French clergy promulgated a statement which basically said that while the Pope could regulate theology, he needed to keep out of the affairs of state and mind his own business. Essentially, the French church was French, first and foremost, and they knew which side their bread was buttered on. Here's an excerpt. The plenitude of authority in things spiritual which belongs to the Holy See and the successors of St. Peter in no wise affects the permanence and immovable strength of the decrees of the Council of Constance, contained in the fourth and fifth sessions of that council, approved by the Holy See, confirmed by the practice of the whole church and the Roman pontiff, and observed in all ages by the Gallican church. That church does not countenance the opinion of those who cast a slur on those decrees, or who lessen their force by saying that their authority is not well established, that they are not approved, or that they apply only to the period of the schism. In other words, the Pope had best know his place. Remember what happened when the Pope interfered with English politics? Hmm? The thing was, 17th century France had been a hotbed of strange and eccentric religious movements, but King Louis wasn't having any of it, and by the time he died in 1714, he had gotten his wish. The church had become a slightly autonomous arm of the state. And while it continued to play a vital role in most communities, such that a complete break from Rome would have been a huge mistake, the 18th century was a fairly boring time theologically. Stripped of its political role, the 
the Catholic Church in France played an analogous role to the Church of England, albeit in the service of a more repressive regime. And similar things were happening throughout Europe. For Joe Peasant, the Church, whether Protestant or Catholic, remained a vital institution, but at the highest levels its influence was waning, except as an instrument of social control. Maybe the most extreme evidence of this was in rulers like Augustus the Strong. Augustus was the hereditary ruler of Saxony, a staunchly Protestant state within the Holy Roman Empire. But in 1697, he was elected King of Poland, a Catholic country, and had to convert. But at the same time, he guaranteed the freedoms of the Lutheran Church in Saxony and, maybe most shockingly, continued to outlaw the open practice of Catholicism there, even while outlawing Lutheranism in his new kingdom. Religion, for the 18th century despot, was just another tool in the service of the state. So much for those who pray. Now to the nobility, the second estate. This is a much larger class, actually, than in places like, say, England. These were the people who owned most of the wealth and who had boatloads of legal privileges and thought the peasants were smelly and dirty. Legally speaking, most of Europe was still feudal in the 18th century. While serfdom was technically obsolete, in practice, most peasants paid rents to a lord who had particular judicial and legal rights to their land. So who were these people? They ranged from middle income to the extreme wealth that we tend to associate with aristocracy. But of course, some of them were simply large landowners. The biggest advantage they had, though, was that they were immune from taxation. This meant that the top 1% of society weren't even paying taxes. So what's going on with this? Why didn't this powerful state just start making them pay their fair share? Let's return to that story about the wars for religion. You see, the people who put good King Henry in power were themselves very powerful landed magnates. Families like the Montmorency, or the de Rohans, or the Condes controlled much of the power in early modern France. Under Henry, this worked because he was good at keeping the nobility, particularly the Protestant nobility, on his side. But once Richelieu rose to power, things were different. The great magnates didn't trust this clerical scion of a minor family. But Richelieu was a master strategist. Richelieu always had a plan. So he decided to divide and conquer. We've already talked about Richelieu's moves against the Huguenot nobility but he made moves against the other magnates as well. Essentially, his policy was to spy on them, manipulate them, let them rebel, and then ruthlessly crush the revolts as a warning to others. And it worked like a charm. However, it wasn't enough. After the Cardinal's death, he was replaced as chief minister by Cardinal Mazarin, an Italian whose loyalty to the crown could not be questioned, but who was, if possible, even more hated because he was seen as a foreign adventurer. The result was that following the French victory in the Thirty Years' War, a massive revolt took place, led by the most prominent of the French nobles, Louis de Bourbon le Grand Conde. Essentially, Conde was tasked with putting down a revolt in Paris, but had a falling out with the Queen and raised an army, and what happened next was a confused mess of shifting alliances that makes George R. R. Martin look fairly straightforward. Essentially, when the dust cleared, royal authority had been reasserted and the stage was set for Louis XIV to take control when he came of age. And boy, did he. As we all know, King Louis was capable, ruthless, and effective as a ruler. He had also learned his lesson about dealing with the aristocracy. 
keep them occupied. So he decided to do two things. First, he decided to constantly go to war, because the army keeps pesky nobles pointed at the enemy and not at you, and also because you don't stay the biggest land power in Europe by sitting around playing tiddlywinks. The other thing he did was he threw a huge party. I mean a massive, decades-long party. And to help him do this, he built one of the biggest, swankest party cribs in all history. That's right, the Palace of Versailles. Basically, the idea was to get the nobility away from Paris and the temptation to lead an angry mob against the palace. Plus, if everybody is partying and constantly jockeying for royal attention, they aren't planning to overthrow the monarchy. However, both war and lit parties require the same thing, money. And so we come back to our friend Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Louis' finance minister. Essentially, what Colbert did was to figure out what everybody in the late 17th century was figuring out, how to live up to your ears in debt. Essentially, war now, pay later, with revenue from newly won territories in Europe and America. And for 75 years, this worked. But we'll talk about how it came back to bite its descendants in a future episode. Colbert, though, was an example of something that was already starting to create cracks in the old order. He wasn't from an old family, you see. Louis was a savvy operator. His way of handling the nobility was either, if they were good at generaling, send them on campaign, or give them meaningless ceremonial posts that came with huge salaries. But for the real business of government, he relied on ministers like Colbert, who earned their way to the top through sheer competence. Then Louis would promote them to the aristocracy, but it was always clear who the real power was. And that was the other key. Louis made sure that everything revolved around him. At Versailles, he had the image of the rising sun placed everywhere, so that everyone would be clear about who revolved around whom. And he created elaborate rituals for mundane tasks and bodily functions surrounding his person, so that the point was crystal clear. Louis was the one calling the shots. And that's where I'm going to leave the nobility for now, because it's time to talk about the ordinary people of France, the so-called Third Estate. These are everyone from Joe Peasant to Marcel the Banker. So let's first talk about the peasants. Things had improved a bit for your average peasant since the Black Death. First of all, serfdom had gone away. Essentially, landlords had gotten used to cash as opposed to goods and services, which meant that Joe Peasant had more time on his hands and a chance to advance himself in the world. The downside, though, was that one bad harvest could be it for you, and because the nobility were exempt from taxation, it meant that the government squeezed the peasantry hard to make up the shortfall. However, the first half of the 18th century was a good time to be farming. Excellent weather patterns across Europe meant excellent harvests, and so the economy grew. People had lots of children, trade boomed when there wasn't a war on, which was really most of the time. In fact, for the majority of the century, it was a good time to be a peasant. One of the things which we don't always understand about peasants is how they think. This is, for the most part, because most of us aren't dependent on land, seasons, and weather for our livelihood. For us, weather is a matter of convenience. Land is a source of equity, or just nice to look at. And seasons are about changing our wardrobe and wondering what our local breweries are cooking up. But for most of history, land, weather, and seasons were a matter of life and death for most people. 
Good weather means a good harvest, which means that we eat this winter. Conversely, one misplaced rainstorm can mean that we have to tighten our belts. For these reasons, the things that might matter to us from our government, political rights, social services, and sound fiscal policy, just weren't as important to peasants most of the time. What the local landowner was doing was much more important than the king's new war with Prussia or the tax policy in general. The problems would come later in the century, when the royal spending spree would start catching up with the government and the weather wouldn't cooperate with the need for new taxes, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. The point is that farmers, whether peasants or not, care an awful lot about consistency, and so tend, on the whole, to be conservative. And when they revolt, it means that something is seriously wrong. But the third estate wasn't just peasants, there was also another group. The inhabitants of the larger towns, known collectively as the bourgeoisie, the so-called middle class. Etymology lesson here. The word bourgeois comes from the old Germanic word for burg or borough, which essentially meant any sort of fortified settlement. So when Alfred the Great fortified the towns of Wessex, they were known as boroughs, and the suffix burg or borough or burg or borg in English, French, or German is reflective of this etymology. In the Middle Ages, prominent members of these communities came to be known as burghers or burgesses, and it is from this root that the term bourgeois is derived. In France, though, this tended to be a smaller portion of the population than in some other parts of Europe. One reason was that France simply had more countryside than a lot of other places, but another was that Louis XIV's religious policy accidentally dealt the bourgeoisie a significant blow. Protestantism was relatively popular among the bourgeoisie. Additionally, because of the Protestant emphasis on education, Huguenots tended to be educated, which in the 17th century meant they had better economic prospects. The result was that when the king revoked the Edict of Nantes, nearly 200,000 people fled France, effectively halving the population of artisans and business people. These exiles ended up then enriching the places that took them in, most of which were, surprise surprise, France's economic rivals. So France experienced a severe brain drain from which it wouldn't recover for nearly a century. But it also meant that the now reduced bourgeoisie had to be taxed more heavily. But the trouble is that when a relatively wealthier segment of the population is squeezed, they tend to have more resources to fight back. And in 18th century France, they responded by, guess what, dodging their taxes, and also agitating for more rights. Watch this space. So change was in the air, and I'm going to close with an anecdote that shows that this was really coming to a head by the late 18th century. In 1732, a family of one-time Huguenot watchmakers had a son. This son took to the business and soon made advances in the manufacture of watches that allowed them to be more accurate. As a result, young Pierre became a watchmaker to King Louis XV and his mistress Madame de Pompadour. Soon, through a shrewd marriage and a number of other social moves, this scion of the bourgeoisie had bought himself a title and was now known as Pierre Beaumarchais. He was an all-around rogue and soon had a number of side businesses going, including smuggling goods to the American colonies. But his tour de force was his career as a playwright, where he made his name lampooning the aristocracy and getting them to share the joke. His play The Barber of Seville was a smashing success that was only matched 
by its sequel, which would soon become the basis for an opera by none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, The Marriage of Figaro. Next time, we're going to take a look across the channel to a very different society, one that had developed very differently from just about any other society in Europe. We're going to be talking about the English-speaking world.